music is entrepreneurial and startup-y and because you're doing things that are obviously you you know i mean a big part of it, you're you're collaborating with people and creating something and trying to get people to pay attention so it is kind of like a, a a startup uh it's maybe more fun even if you're failing <laughs> than a startup because you can you can still in, enjoy it um the when i joined indeed uh and we were still pretty small and couldn't afford to hire a band for our holiday party four of us got together in 2011 and uh we we put together a band for the holiday party and then that has become a tradition and indeed so even when we got bigger and we had like six bands because there's a bunch of musicians at indeed but so i get to play with really talented folks uh once a year at indeed uh, so music is a huge part of my life but i you know i studied um i studied architecture computer science and percussion and i didn't I didn't realize until later, but they're all the sort of intersection of art and math, right? Yeah, there's they're, actually they're... a fantastic book written about it. Um, it's called uh, Goethe Escher Bach. Uh, it's a really dense book. It's not one you can sit down and read in one setting, but it talks about how music, art, and math are all interrelated. For this episode, we sit down with two longtime Austin-based entrepreneurs, Chris Himes and Mitesh Karia. Today, Chris is the CEO of Indeed, and Mitesh recently finished a decade-long stint at the Zebra, and he now serves as CTO at a higher-ed fintech startup called Ernest. A couple of decades ago, when Austin was a different city, Chris and Mitesh were co-founders of a film distribution startup called B-Side. B-Side was one of Josh Bayer's first startup investments, which is how we got connected with them. This conversation was recorded live for an audience of University of Texas students taking Longhorn Startup, and I hope you, like the students, walk away with a better understanding of Austin's entrepreneurial roots, as well as how Mitesh and Chris grew with our city into entrepreneurs making an impact on a global scale. Welcome to Austinpreneur, our show about the stories that made Austin, Texas, a global hub for startups. The show is produced by Capital Factory and hosted by me, Nick Spiller. As a reminder, by joining Capital Factory, you can plug into the ecosystem where the stories on the show were set. Learn more about us at CapitalFactory.com. Mitesh Karyam, most people call me Tesh. Uh, born in North Carolina, but grew up on the east coast of Florida. Uh, went to Duke, and I moved out here now 24 years ago for a company at the time where I met Chris, a company called Trilogy. Uh, I thought I would be here for three years. I actually started the same day as Josh Baer, um, working in the, the same group. Too. Like Trilogy University, yeah. is that yeah, what it was Trilogy called? University. We were in a group called Yoda. And, uh, and thought I'd be here for a few years and move back east or, or west. And 24 years later, I'm, I'm still here. Great. Uh, I'm Chris Himes. I'm older than Tesh, so my story's longer, but I'll, I'll try to tell a, a short one. Uh, liberal arts, undergrad, studied architecture. There was no software industry. At this, we're talking like ancient times. Graduated college in 1989. Uh, started out my career, I worked in uh, adolescent addiction recovery, uh, moved to a small town in Vermont and taught special education public high school, uh, moved to Los Angeles and played music professionally for a couple of years, and then followed my wife to Rice University at Houston. She got a job in 1993 as an academic librarian, and I could take undergraduate classes for free as the spouse of a staff member in 1993 
thought, oh, this computer science thing could be kind of interesting. Um, and again, you have to realize in 1993, there was, there was nothing going on at the time. And just flipped out, fell in love with it, decided I was going to do this for the rest of my life, got a master's in CS. I was there from 93 to uh, end of 95. And during that time, Mosaic, which is well before your time, but that was the first widely available web browser came out. So the World Wide Web as we know it sort of happened at that time. Uh, the first version of the Linux operating system, first ver version of the Java programming language, and Amazon.com all launched in that three-year period. So the, sort of the web happened, and got. I was going to go and get a PhD and stay at Rice and Trilogy, which hired very uh, heavily out of Rice at the time, came. And um, so I joined Trilogy in 96. I stayed there for nine years, started out as an engineer, um, ended up as the VP of engineering, and um, long story, you know, uh, at Trilogy, but a whole bunch of folks. Every Austin startup has one or more people that, that came through Trilogy. That's where we met Josh and a whole bunch of other folks. Everyone was Trilogy to start. And uh, if you want to understand the Austin tech startup scene, it's worth studying Trilogy because essentially what happened was, I mean, it was, it was interesting business, but we aggressively recruited the top computer science students from all over the country and moved them all to Austin and overpaid everyone and then fired everyone. Uh, also like that's gave, the gave short us, version of like a 10 year story. Way too much responsibility yeah. too. Um, and so, so created this, this whole sort of entrepreneurial army um, and then went through a bunch of layoffs and, and let everyone go. And that sort of seeded all of the other startups and tech companies, but everyone learned a ton in that process. And uh, so when I left, was sort of in, you know, I don't know, phase two of 10 of a bunch of people leaving. And so I just basically set up B-Side originally as kind of a halfway house for people mm. as they were leaving <laughs> Trilogy, they could come in and work for, you know, we had some people who worked for three or four weeks, and then some people who stayed for the, the whole time. And it was probably a few years before we actually hired someone from the outside who wasn't actually from Trilogy. Yeah, I, I want to say it was Steph. Maybe. Steph, 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 and then Cassie, yeah. And then Cassie, yeah. What made Trilogy so special? It's the people, right? Hands down, 100%. The folks that, that came in, Josh and beyond, is what made Trilogy special and made Austin's startup market special. What is the pitch for, for B-Side, and what was uh, the, the vision there? So I'll start by saying, like a lot of startups, the pitch changed over time because mm -hmm. what we originally pitched didn't work, which happens. The original pitch, um, I'll, since you guys were off doing show of hands, has anyone read the book Moneyball or seen the movie? Okay, see, more seen the movie than read the book. Please read the book. It is the best book ever written on data-driven decision-making. The movie is fun. The book is amazing. Mm. So I read the book, quit my job, and the one-second pitch was Moneyball for independent films. Um, and the, the thesis of the book is that anyone that has unique data that gives you insight into the true value of assets can do really, really well by buying undervalued assets and selling overvalued assets. And so the idea was, you have to remember, this is 2005, so this is long before all the stuff that's obvious today. Um, there had been an explosion in digital photography, which had made uh, making a film a lot easier than it used to be. So the stuff that is all obvious to all of you right now, you take your phone out and you can make a movie. Video 
uh, production technology suddenly became accessible to a whole bunch of people. And so in 1995, there were 5,000 films made globally. In 2005, there were 50,000. I don't know the numbers in the millions now, but that was a pretty radical thing then. And the way that films were being distributed and viewed and monetized had not changed at all. So this was also, this was before Netflix streaming and Amazon Prime and any of those things. And so the idea was, initially we thought studios were still gonna wanna identify and distribute these films, but they had no idea how to figure out which of the other 45,000 films had a potential audience. And so what we did is we built these websites to run the, the websites for film festivals. There's 2,000 at the time. There were, um, these are old numbers. I don't know what it is today. There were 2,000 film festivals around the world with about 5 million audience members. They were screening about 50,000 films, and no one was asking anyone what they thought. So we built a site for the film festival audiences to go and look at the schedules, figure out which films they want to see, watch the trailers, but then we would collect ratings and reviews from them. Totally obvious stuff now. It was not obvious in 2005. It was kind of blowing people's minds at the time. And the idea was we would just get real-time feedback, like a, a, an analytics, real-time analytics platform for all these undistributed films, and then we would sell that data to studios because they'd be so excited to use empirical evidence to figure out what films to distribute. And it turns out they were not interested in data or empirical evidence of any kind. <laughs> Um, and then so we, we, we can talk what happened from there. But that was the original pitch was we were going to get this unique set of data and, uh, and sell that to studios. And when they didn't want to buy it, we then had to figure out what to do next. I think at the end of, near the end of 2004, I left Trilogy. Um, and I went to go hang out in Budapest, Hungary with my now wife. Um, and I just wasn't doing, I was learning Hungarian, I was traveling around. And then I got bored of doing that. Um, and uh, as chance would happen, Chris sent out an email, I think, looking for, uh, for something around servers, I think. And I was like, oh, I wonder what Chris is doing. Um, reached out to Chris. Uh, I grew up very much into film. I was a projectionist. I, was, I worked at movie theaters. And I was like, oh, I can do something in film. I can do something in tech. Uh, and it had the bonus of I could do it from Hungary while I was still there for a little while, too. So. Uh, that's how we got started, and then uh, came, I came back, literally worked out of your garage office. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was literally a garage yeah, startup, yep. and uh, and had nothing at home other than a, a you know a card table that I used to yeah. <laughs> code on, and it would shake. <laughs> well, it did. For anyone who's going to read Moneyball, read it all the way through because the, the the answer to our problem was also in the story of Moneyball, which is that the guy who came up with the analytics to figure out how baseball should work tried to sell that to Major League Baseball and no one wanted to buy it. So I sort of missed the obvious piece, which is that any industry that at the time was still not actually using data to make decisions, there's a reason. And in fact, this is a good general startup sort of bit of advice. It's very easy to be a smart, analytical person and look at a business and say, oh my god, this is so screwed up. These people have no idea. All you have to do is measure the stuff, and then you can do it so much more efficiently. There's a reason those businesses are inefficient, and there's always someone whose power or wealth uh, is dependent on that inefficiency. So there's a whole bunch of forces arrayed against you, and just doing something smarter and more data-driven doesn't, it's not going to make things not easy. just people. There's entire companies right. that are that are middle men. Indi the whole, whole industries that the exist. whole industries that exist just 
to right. capitalize and efficiency. Mitesh worked in, in the insurance industry, or still works yes, in the insurance exactly. industry for a long time. That's, that's one of those ones where, yes, you look at it and say, oh my God, this is so easy to fix. And it's not easy to fix because there are people and systems behind it. But so we ended up then taking the next chapter from, from Moneyball, which was that this idea was out there for how to run a baseball team more efficiently. Bill James couldn't sell this idea to anyone in Major League Baseball. Bill, uh, Billy Bean was the general manager of the Oakland A's, and so he decided to take these techniques and run his business that way. So we launched our own digital distribution business and built our own streaming platform before Netflix and Amazon and all those other ones. Which is, by the way, the other thing when you're building a startup is super ambitious ideas with 12 people. Um, sometimes are difficult so there was no <laughs> aws uh, i was i think s3 launched in 2006 uh for those of you who are, are tech enough like i we were using hand coding ffmpeg and handbrake and like there was no zen coder there's no video encoding software nothing I mean, the first server was in my closet the and it got unplugged yeah, and got by, unplugged once yeah it got unplugged and we're like that site's down but did the industry so, so so we spent yeah. a lot of time yeah. with a whole bunch of people from the industry and Basically, everyone thought that digital distribution was a, a dumb idea. No one was ever going to watch a movie on their computer, Never. let alone on their phone. Yeah. Um, and we, it was really, really hard. So the, before the music dies, were, they, were the, they were not the first, but they were like the second film where we saw the response at a film festival. People freaked out for this movie. We had really interesting demographic data. For, we had the ratings and reviews from all the festivals, and then demographics on who the audience might be and came up with this very complicated uh, um, crowdsourced marketing scheme for how to get these things out there and then we were going to monetize them through DVDs and again because DVDs were how movies made money back right, then right. Um, and it was interesting so there were a handful of people who sort of saw that there was an opportunity for this but we were there's 4,700 reasons why it didn't work. One of them was we were definitely too early with a lot. Yeah. So a lot of this stuff seems fairly obvious now. Um, and it also seems obvious that maybe some very big companies were going to end up spending a couple hundred million dollars compared to the eight million that we raised over time and, and probably would have beaten us to it. But we were we were pretty early on some of this well, stuff. I seem to remember when you two decided to distribute directly that, that album and skip the, the studio and distribution channels is when things started to switch. And it was actually Radiohead, remember? So that was uh, In Rainbows came oh, out yeah, during sorry, that time. Radiohead, so Radiohead released uh, In Rainbows, DRM-free digital download, name your own price. They, they sort of like ripped it. But you have to think about what was going on in the movie business at the time. Um, this was 2005, was when we were starting up. 1999 is when Napster launched. So you all, this is all ancient history for all of you, but people used to go to stores and buy records and, and CDs. Um, and there was no thing as digital. And so digital distribution as a business model came on the heels of digital distribution being free, stealing music. What Apple proved with, with iTunes was that people are happy to pay for convenience. Like people would have paid for it, but the music business fought this whole new platform. And because it got so turned upside down, the movie business looked at this and said, we're never gonna fall into the same problem that the music business did. Mm. So they resisted it even you know more stubbornly than yeah. than music did so it was a it was and again it's i'm sure all your guys your ideas are going to be really successful but um there's a like a successful startup is like a perfect storm you have to have exactly the right team 
customers that are that are ready technology has to be ready with the right business model like all those things have to come together for it to work there's any number of reasons why it might not work yeah. we sort of ran into like 20 of them all at the same time <laughs> what's the what's the entree of the internet um advertising maybe i mean in terms of a business that's that's the sort of the business model but in terms of what it's transformed it's transformed like everything about how we get information share information communicate with each other like ai is bigger than the internet in terms of the impact it's going to have on, on our lives so i don't think that there's like one i don't believe that there's going to be one business that is going to be oh that's the it's not like blockchain blockchain is still a technical an interesting technical um solution in search of a problem in my opinion I'm, that might be controversial in this room um but ai is not because ai is first of all has been around for 40 years and is in literally every single aspect of your life today if you open your phone by looking at it that's ai if you use if you use google maps to to go somewhere if you swipe the next video on TikTok, there's like nothing in your life that isn't already uh in a massively uh, transformational way different because of, of AI. So AI is going to transform every single industry in the world. It has been foundation of Indeed's business. We are, we are super all in it. I will also just say um, that I'm also super concerned about AI and not because of robot overlords, um, but primarily because of bias. Um, and in employment, that's a big deal, but it's, um, I would highly, so first of all, I, I wrote an op-ed about this last week uh, in Fortune, and however we share these out, I can send it out to you because I talk about why I'm super excited, also why I'm concerned. But Bloomberg did this really amazing study recently um, where they, uh, looking at the potential problems of generative AI from a bias perspective, and so they went to, uh, I think it was Midjourney, and asked them to, to create images of people working in different um, in different occupations. And, and then they categorized all the faces that came back by skin tone and perceived gender. And not shockingly, like the CEOs were all white men and the social workers were all black women. Um, and it's not just that that's reflective of the fact that yes, there's more white men who are CEOs, but 70% um, of the fast food workers had darker skin tones but 70% of fast workers, fast food workers in the U.S. are white. And 7% of the doctors in the images were women, but 39% of doctors in the world are women. So all of these systems have uh, the ability to massively uh, amplify bias that already exists in the world. And so this thing that is super transformative and is going to change absolutely every single industry in the world um, has a whole bunch of problems that... I think require, like, I think all of you uh, should be taking philosophy and history and reading literature. Ethics. And, like, you can pick up your CS, you know, and coding on the side. But, like, it's really important that the people who are going to be determining the, the future of the planet in terms of how people are going to do everything that they do because of technology to understand, like, go see Oppenheimer. Um, and then, and think about the fact that like the the technologies that we're talking about here are as big and transformative as atomic energy and that you should all be thinking about the impact on humans and society as you're going about the next decades of your careers
Awesome. Well, does anyone have a question for the group? Um, yeah, I was wondering at Indeed what helped you jump from like VP to product to CEO. And then I was also wondering like how you feel like your role as CEO is different than it was as a founder and um, like what unique challenges you face as CEO compared to like a startup space. The, how I got from uh, being the VP of product to, to the role that I'm in right now, I, I view a whole lot of my career um, I'd imagine Tesh does too, being in the right place at the right time. Like everyone, you know, you have to work hard and do all those kinds of things. I was extremely fortunate to join Indeed at the time that I did. Um, but a big part of it, I think, was having been a startup founder that when I joined, um, I had a pretty good sense of what the founders wanted and like what was keeping them up at three o'clock in the morning in the middle of the night. And, um, and I just, uh, I, I really tried to understand what it was that was unique that made Indeed successful and then just make sure that every single person we hired afterwards had that same foundation. And so I think I connected deeply to the mission um, pretty early on, but also uh, just practically speaking, it's a product, it's a technology company, it's a product led company and I was the guy leading the product and technology and um, happened to, I think because my career also, like I talked about, I did a bunch of stuff before I got into tech. Um, leading a company is equal parts, like strategy and technology, finance and human. Um, and I sort of have a deep care and understanding of people and what makes them tick and how they learn and grow and what freaks them out and what makes them feel safe and comfortable. Um, and I think both those sides are really, really, and there's a lot of tech CEOs who are definitely not like that. So you can, you know, you can pick any of your favorite examples of people who are not like that, but that's the thing that I think I brought that was probably viewed by the board as, as the, the right thing at the right time for Indeed. They probably could have gone some other directions. What's different running this company than being a, a founder? I mean, they're like, besides the fact that the company is 200 times bigger, uh, then, then indeed, the biggest difference is I um, am very clear on the fact that it's not my company. Um, I am uh, a steward and a shepherd of this thing that, like, I fell in love with when I joined. That was so amazing that I just wanted to be successful. But it's very different. Like, I don't feel, I don't feel ownership. I feel like I have, um, uh, I'm temporarily in the seat, and my job is to set it up over the next five to 10 years for the next person to come in because I want it to be around forever. Um, and that is a very different feeling. I have the same level of like three o'clock in the morning, I'm responsible and I have to make all this stuff work. Um, but I've, it's a very different relationship than the thing that sort of felt a little more like my baby. And so it was great to actually go through that process. And I'll just say one thing that, you know, Tash probably heard this a bunch. Um, you know, people would, will talk to you and say, oh, well, with your first startup, you know, dot, dot, dot. And I was like so pissed at the idea that that, you know, this is not my first startup. This thing is going to tell, it's going to be your first startup, whatever it is that you're doing. You know, maybe one of you, it won't be. Um, and, but that experience of going through and, and uh, trying all the hard things and, and running into a bunch of brick walls and figuring out what doesn't work was so invaluable to come in later to something else and to figure out, like I had made so many, the, my greatest asset at this point, at this advanced age, is all of the stuff that I've screwed up. 
and I've screwed up way more stuff than all of you in the room combined. And that's actually a super valuable set of experiences. Just doing stuff that works and wins, you have no idea what all the problems are. Um, so I also came to it with a whole lot of experience of having messed up a lot of stuff that was really helpful in terms of being able to see around corners and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I can echo that last part uh, for sure, which is, you know, people have asked me, like, what is the biggest takeaway I've gotten from five years at, at B-Side besides timing? It was like the, all the things that we did wrong, right? After that, I was CTO of a company called Thinktive, uh, where we helped commercialize. You know, I worked with 71 different companies over three years, helping to commercialize a lot of them, build MVPs. And I, I, was, I took way more from what doesn't work than what did work right. And so going into the Zebra, I knew what things to avoid, what to, you know, where I could take shortcuts to say, I, I don't need to try all these other paths because I've already done it before. And I know what, what doesn't work. Um, and then if, to go back to Chris's point around leadership, um, you know, I'll, I'll attest like empathy and vulnerability, right? That's something I've always seen for Chris. It's one of the reasons why I enjoyed working with him so much. Um, and it's something that for, you know, all of you, if you're, you're looking to get into leadership, I, you know, I'd encourage you to go do something. I, I minored in psychology. I was fascinated by people. Um, you know, I did, I, I played competitive sports. I did other things outside that, that let me understand people because technology is more than just programming. It's more than just product or business. It is, it's people. And ultimately, uh, I mean, I think going back to Trilogy, what made Trilogy so special? It's the people, right? Hands down. 100% the folks that, that came in, Josh and beyond, is what made Trilogy special and made Austin's startup market special. Hi, my name's Sammy, and I have one question. Um, what's the biggest life lesson you've learned throughout this entire journey? So startups it, are uh, a game of roulette, right? The math, and actually roulette, you have much better chances than, than with a startup. Um, and one, one bit of advice that we got, so our, our early, Josh was one of our early investors, and then in, in the next round, um, a guy who some of you might have heard of, a guy named Mike Maples Jr. Um, in his first fund was, was an early investor. Um, and one of the bits of advice that Mike gave, we were, to me, early on, which was stuck with me, was really helpful, as we were negotiating with, with someone else about how much someone who was gonna maybe join and how much equity to maybe give them, and it was like, is it gonna be 2.5% or 2.6%? And it was like a huge deal about this. And, and Mike said, when you're, when you're dealing with other humans, um, just assume this is not gonna work out, because it's probably not. And when you look back afterwards, will, will you feel like this was, you know, this fight was worth it? Um, and he's like, because if you, if you give them 2.6% and the thing is wildly successful, like you're, everyone's gonna be happy, no one's gonna care. But if you fight for a month over it and you, you know, get it down to 2.2%, you might think you've won something, but you might be losing a friendship. Um, and because in reality, and I'll say like Indeed is a wildly successful company um, by every possible measure. And uh, if you just, think of all of the things that we do and all of the ideas that we have. So we have like 3,400 A-B tests running across all of Indeed right now. We test and measure absolutely everything we do. We have really good empirical data. Two-thirds of our tests fail. So that means that like most of our ideas are bad. 
and that means most of the things we try are not going to work, including new product launches and major new features. And, and then to, we're constantly whittling away what's the stuff that works, stopping doing the stuff that, that doesn't work. And so if you're going to be wrong most of the time, um, treating the people that you work with uh, the way that you would want someone to treat, you know, your grandmother or your little sister or whatever it is, and it's not a competition with other people because at the end of the day, um, and again, there are some like, I think bad examples of like, you know, what people like to lionize as, as the brilliant founder, CEO, visionary, blah, blah, blah. There's like three of those in the world and none of them are really good to work for from all, uh, uh, <laughs> from, from, from pretty much all of the narratives um, and you know, again, what matters to me is is the relationships with the people that I'm working with, and especially if you're going to work with someone once and then you want to work with them later. When I went to go start B-Side, like all these people wanted to work with me um, because you know we had really good, like we did good work and 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 we were focused on on getting shit done. But um, those relationships are invaluable, and so I think that like thinking about all the other stuff, but that that advice of like. Think about, hey, if this doesn't work out, how are you going to feel about the human relationships? That's the, that's the thing that, that has served me the best throughout this journey. I came out of the end of the B-side thing with this, um, with this theory that there's two patron saints of startups, and it's Don Quixote and Mr. Spock. And so like the, the deal is um, to do any of the things that you all are talking about doing, you have to put on the... Don Quixote helmet and get on a, a mule and ride out and believe that like the rest of the world is completely insane. Nobody understands anything and like you're the only one who sees the world clearly and you're going to go do this anyway. But if that's all you are and that's the only way that you look at the world, you're definitely going to go off the edge of a cliff. And so like once a week, you need to take off the Don Quixote helmet and put on the Mr. Spock ears and just be totally dispassionate and unemotional and logical and just say, Here's the numbers, is this working? And if it's working, then take off the Spock ears and put the helmet back on and, and go back out there. Successful startups usually have one person who can do both those or two people. There's a Don Quixote and a Mr. Spock pair. And if you're all one, try to find someone who's the other because you need, you need the rational. Otherwise, you'll, you'll run out of money and time. Um, but you need to also be a little bit crazy. Otherwise, you'll never do anything interesting. And so... Yeah, be realistic, but also you, you, you have to be a little crazy too. I have two more tactical, less profound things that I've kind of carried through. One very startup related, which is take money off the table anytime you get a chance, right? You Like 99% of startups fail. Unless it's selling to Google. Unless it's selling to Google. Well, we weren't selling to Google, but, but yeah. Um, and then the other one is more around how to solve problems as you get into to working. And I, I got this bit of advice given to me that I've used over and over again, and it's worked, which is if you can't control the chaos, contain it, right? And it applies to a ton of different circumstances. It applies to working with people. It applies to working with um, different you know, parts of technology to different parts of the business. Um, but, uh, but that's just something that, that I've found over and over again has really helped me as there's a lot of chaos in building uh, companies and growing companies. Um, human chaos, business chaos, outside the, the business, inside the business. And so that's, uh, that's just something that I, I've used a lot. Hi, my name is Jay. 
Uh, I was wondering for both of you from your experience in startups, but also as CTO and VP, how should people in general be approaching startups to where it's something that could actually make money or, you know, build instead of being something that's just an idea and fizzling out like 99%, like you said? Making money is an important piece of that. So that's like one of the biggest problems with, with B-Side. And I think up until a year ago, the market was sort of back where it was back, like in 2000, 2004 to 2008, there was this, I think, frankly, insane view, which was like, oh, you just get a bunch of eyeballs and then we'll figure out how to monetize it later. Um, and there's very few successful scalable businesses that came out of that thinking that figured out later how to make money. And so the thing about it, and, and, and with B-Side, like we knew how we were going to make money, but it was so hard and so complicated to get paid and that it was like months and months after we did anything that that money would start coming in. And I came to Indeed and we were like making money every microsecond. Um, and the, the business model, and it's and what's great about Indeed is that we're not a site where we bring people in and then we sell advertising for something else. That advertising on Indeed is jobs. So as a job seeker, you come in, you look for jobs, and you see jobs. And some of those are free and some of those are paid. So we happen to have this really beautiful like alignment where we make money when we're doing better for the people who are coming to the site. Whereas you go to Facebook, Facebook makes money when they get more detailed psychographic information about you that they can use to target advertising to you, which is a little different. Um, and not to say that you know general advertising is is a great business model and has, has built sort of the internet, but starting with uh, what are the unit economics and how is this thing going to make money and how is technology going to uniquely enable that thing to be bigger, better, and scale more, that shouldn't be something that you think about later. Um, so like if it's a business, you have to think about how how are you going to make money every single day and how are you going to make more than you spend um, because that's the difference between a business I mean and that's, that's the job of a business businesses yeah. make money technology teams exist to build technology they don't exist if there's no money in it the wasn't business. until the internet that people started right. s starting businesses without an idea of how to make money like that didn't used to be a thing you used to have to have a concept of how you're going to make money and sometimes you could make more than you spent but um, so like understanding the mechanics of, of where the money is coming from. Only taking really money if and when you need it and taking as little as possible, right? Because the more you take, the more pressure there is, the more... You're talking about investment now. Yeah, I'm, I'm just talking about investment. I'm also talking about, you know, making money. If you can bootstrap it, right? Bootstrapping is a great way to go figure out how to make money uh, because you can be, you have to be profitable from, from the very get-go, right? And so, uh, you know, but yeah, you got to focus on, on making money from the beginning. Hi, my name is Brandon. Uh, I wanted to ask three questions uh, regarding how you maintained a healthy relationship with your team. So like, first thing was, so how did you maintain like a healthy and efficient relationship with you and your employees? Second one was, how did you approach a very unproductive employee? And lastly, what do you do when you have a different coworker that has like a different vision than yours for the company? Like how do you debate them on this or how do you talk with them about it? You know, I think the biggest thing of having any healthy relationship with any kind of leadership team or, or team that's working on something is the ability to, to uh, discuss the issue respectfully, get everything out there, but then one person's going to end up having to make a decision and you're going to have to disagree and commit on that, right? And as a leadership team, if you can get your points shared, all, all align and agree on who's ultimately making the decision um, and 
commit to it, even if you disagree, then you have a healthy relationship. If not, you've either got to figure out how you can make that relationship healthy or, or not work together because, you know, there, that kind of sows dysfunction in a team. And in fact, there's a fantastic book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. That's a really quick read that kind of goes into a lot of that if you're interested. Um, and then uh, the other ones were how do you maintain the relationship with your team and, and how do you handle a difficult uh, or problematic? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, a, a difficult and problematic, it, it, a lot of it comes with you got to be direct and you've got to share respectful, direct, and feedback has to be shared right away, right? And you need to be open to, to feedback as well. Um, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of information on how to be, how to share feedback well, how to make it about the action, not the person, um, how to, you know, cultivate, but it all comes from building an environment of trust, which kind of goes to your first thing, first question, which is you've got to be vulnerable, you've got to be open, and your team has to be able to trust you, or no matter of feedback or direction you give will matter, and no one's going to follow you. Yeah, there's a, a, a former... I can't remember if she was Google or YouTube, Kim Scott, who wrote Radical Candor, mm -hmm. um, which I'll admit I haven't read, but I've watched her interviewed, so I, I, I know the principle. Um, but in terms of the feedback thing, she, she has this, she, she wrote this book and does these lectures and workshops. And the basic idea is really simple. There's like a two by two, which is um, you're brutally honest or you totally avoid the point on one axis and you don't care at all or you care a lot. And what you want is to be brutally honest and care a lot um, in feedback. And like she talks about each of the different quadrants and there's a problem. Obviously, if you don't care and you're brutally honest, then you're just mean. And if you care a lot and you're not honest, like you're passive and you're not helping the person. And so, but the trick with the other one, because I, I ended up in this conversation talking to, to someone on my team a while back. Um, and this person asked the question, well, like, well, how do you care? I'm like, well, you actually just have to care. So like the, the, the trick is dealing with good employees or problematic employees or everything else in between. It, you have to actually care about the people. And again, there's lots and lots of examples who people, you know, if it's their company or if they're just self-focused instead of other focused, you can think it's all about yourself and then everyone else who's slowing you down is an impediment to your success you're probably not going to have good relationships with your teams. If you actually care about the individuals and you believe that the success of the team only works if people are at their best, and it doesn't mean that everyone is going to succeed, but if you actually have empathy and care about the, the person, um, then that's great. And if you're born naturally empathetic, then you don't have to work at that. And if you're not, you have to work at it. Um, otherwise, it's going to be really, really hard unless you're that 0.0001% visionary who can be a total asshole and still build a successful company. But that's like super rare. I don't recommend anyone trying that as a path because that that's even less likely than a successful startup. Um, when Tesh used the, the phrase disagree and commit, if anyone hasn't seen them, Amazon has a set of leadership principles doesn't mean that everyone should just do things like Amazon, but they're really well thought out. There's 12 or 13 of them. 12 or 13, yeah. um, Google Amazon leadership principles. The people who work there, they, they're printed out and they're on a piece of paper like in every single meeting room. They write about in their annual shareholders reports. It is really how they run the business. It's a really good set of principles just to, to research for like how teams work together and how they make decisions and how. And so it's important for every business at some point to 
think about what are the things that are important to you, but disagree and commit is one of those because a successful company is not a democracy. It's important to listen to people, but if everyone is making decisions, then you're not going to get anywhere. Um, and that is a that is a really important one. But one other follow-up I'll have is that just like with a, a company with startup with anything you do, uh, if you're aspiring to be a good leader, you're going to fail at it, right? You will make mistakes, right? And the important thing is learning from them, right? And owning up to them. It's kind of like being a parent. Yes, too. 100%. I, I actually, when I became a parent, I think I my me as a leader changed dramatically. You have to listen. They don't always do what you ask them to do. Um, and, and it just changes your whole perspective. Hi, Chris and Tesh. Uh, my name is Veer. Something that I've always tried to focus on my day to day is how to use my time most efficiently. I know that both of you are probably very busy people and have insight and advice on how to prioritize and how to manage your time. I just want to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, the quick answer is be ruthless, but the, uh, the, the better answer is actually, um, I got told this story, and, and it's probably a fable out there, a story of, called the Big Rocks, which you've probably heard. Um, but I'll, I'll tell the quick, cheesy version of it is a professor walks into a classroom with a bag, puts a jar, an empty jar on the table, asks if it's empty. The class says, yep, it's empty. Great. And puts a bunch of rocks in there, asks if it's, if it's empty now. And someone in the class says, no, it's full. He's like, okay, takes a bunch of pebbles, pours it in there, they fill it up. It's like, what about now? They're starting to catch on and like, no, it's not empty. Pours in sand, same thing. And then asks again, okay, now is it full? And everyone's like, yeah, of course it is. Takes out a pitcher of water, pours water in there and fills it up. And so everyone's you know, amazed and he said, okay, what's the moral of the story? And someone said, okay, you can always fit more in. And he's like, no, if you don't put the big rocks in first, there's, there won't be space for them because everything else fills it in. And so that's how I've really focused on planning out my time is what are the big rocks my family my health you know even at at work what are the key core things i need to do that are that i'm on the hook for every day that gets planned first everything else fills in around there the emails the little things um and that's you know that really kind of changed my perspective probably at least 10 years ago 12 years ago things started to get really hectic and I, I go back to it and from time to time I'll do an audit and like go back and like am I actually focused on the things that are really important I'm gonna, I'm gonna be super disappointing here I, I'm terrible at this um, there's a bunch of people who like you read their blogs and listen to their podcasts and they're like efficiency I am such not an efficiency expert I am super busy um, but kind of along the lines with Tesh that what, what I'll say is the one thing that I realized somewhere along the way and it took me probably longer than it should have is that um work is infinite you are never if you're doing like if you uh if you work retail then you have a start time and an end time um or if you're a surgeon like you come in and, and you do it but like the type of work that we're talking about doing it is infinite and you can you can go the water approach and spend all of your time working and just understanding your own personal limits of I know that I am no longer productive after a certain period of time. I can sit at my desk forever, and at some point I'm not getting work done. And so like figuring out for yourself, I don't believe that there's productivity hacks that work for everyone, but like I know um, early mornings I'm super productive. So I can like, if I have to write something, if I can sit down and do it with a cup of coffee, like I'm gonna be able to write more in two hours from seven to nine in the morning than I am from two to 4 p.m. because I'm lagging, but like I'm an old guy and I like it took me a long time to figure that stuff out. 
I'm also unfortunately pretty good late at night, which means that sometimes, because I'm still the same procrastinator I was in eighth grade, like sometimes I'm up late doing stuff, but because this stuff is infinite, it's unsustainable to do that all the time. So I, at this stage, I'm running a very big company. I have a whole lot of stuff on my plate. I pretty much don't work nights and don't work weekends. Um, and that I'm sure to some people, you know, would be horrific, but like, it's, it's unsustainable any other way. It's just like, you know, athletes overtraining is a real thing. And I think overworking and I've spent on B side, I was working a hundred hours a week. It was yeah. completely insane. And it was not definitely not good for my family. It was not good for my health. Um, I don't think that I, I would think I would have been more effective if I was working well, and, and, those and hours. We're, we're doing thought work and you need time to think and your, your subconscious actually does process when you're not actively doing work and it doesn't actively like it doesn't process while you're actively doing work and so it, it's actually helpful in many ways to step away take a walk do other things and uh and let your brain just kind of sit yeah and, fig and figure out what works for you again like what times of day or is it a coffee shop or in your room or like when do you if you do something that seems like oh wow that was awesome i'm glad i did it Try to try to figure out <laughs> where you were and and what was going on, because everyone has a different kind of creative profile for what works for them, and understanding that is really helpful. And I think also sometimes um, certain things need to be put down and come back. Like my wife and I do the New York Times crossword puzzle together every day. We started doing it in the pandemic, where I think we're like on day 1175 now, of finishing it before midnight. But like you know, Fridays and Saturdays are hard. And sometimes we'll do it, and it'll just be impossible, and we, there's no way we can get the, the northwest corner there. And we put it down and watch an episode of Netflix and go back, and then suddenly it's obvious. And so sometimes walking away for a little bit of time is the best way to, to get unstuck. But just like figure out what works for you, and don't, don't read 15 books and listen to 45 podcasts on how to be an efficiency expert. Just figure out what works for you. What music did you do in L.A.? And... Did any of those skills overlap to your role as CEO? Uh, that's a good question. Well, like uh, staring failure in the face every day, like is a useful is useful practice for anything. Um, so I played drums. I played for for many many. I started when I was twelve, and I still I still play. Um, but I played full time and tried to. But on my LinkedIn profile, it says tried to become a rock star, failed, would do it all over again. And that's that's sort of my summary of it. Um, I played in like five bands. I studied jazz very seriously, but I played in, in rock bands and uh, all through high school and college and, and during that period of time. Um, music is entrepreneurial and startup-y because you're doing things that are obviously, you you know, I mean, a big part of it, you're, you're collaborating with people and creating something and trying to get people to pay attention. So it is kind of like a, a, a startup. Uh, it's maybe more fun, even if you're failing, <laughs> than a startup, because you can you can still in, enjoy it. Um, the When I joined Indeed, uh, and we were still pretty small and couldn't afford to hire a band for our holiday party, four of us got together in 2011, and uh, we, we put together a band for the holiday party, and then that has become a tradition in Indeed. So even when we got bigger and we had like six bands, because there was a bunch of musicians at Indeed, but so I get to play with really talented folks uh, once a year at Indeed. Uh, so music is a huge part of my life, but I, you know, I, studied, um, I studied architecture, computer science, and percussion, and I didn't 
I didn't realize until later, but they're all the sort of intersection of art and math, right? There's they're, actually they're, a fantastic book written about it. Um, it's called uh, Gitte Escher Bach. Uh, it's a really dense book. It's not one you can sit down and read in one setting, but it talks about how music, art, and math are all interrelated. Hi, Tesh and Chris. Uh, my name is Anjali. I have two questions. The first one was, um, how did, when you started out personally, how did you measure success for yourself as an entrepreneur, and how do you measure success for yourself today? When I started out, uh, how did I measure success was basically... Did I do the tasks that I committed myself to doing? I started out coding, and you know I was successful if I was able to develop whatever I said I wanted to do. It was very myopic and very you know uh, small. And then from an you know entrepreneurial standpoint, it it's tough because success is hard to see sometimes when you're in the middle of everything. Um, you know, you get to the the end of the week, and it's like, did we advance the business? Could we pay people? Um, are the you know the lights still on? Like, you focus on a lot of little wins. Um, now, I mean, now I, I kind of look at it a lot more. It, it, it's easier to be a little bit more distanced from some of that. To Chris's point, in, in some ways, you you need to be personal with it, but not take it personal. Um, and so I look at it of like, did I end the day energized? Am I still excited about what I'm doing? Um, you know, ready to go? Then I feel like I'm, I'm doing good work. Did we move the, the business forward? I, it, I don't know, I've taken a much more philosophical view on, on work at this point because I've been doing the, the 100 hour thing for way too long. And, um, and so, yeah, success more is. Could I do that stuff and then can I spend time with my family and take care of my health and you know do the other things that I enjoy doing so I don't know it's different yeah I mean I, th I think it's a great question because you encoded in the question the fact that it's not the same when you start doing it and and later on and so I think yeah when we started B-Side any startup of course you're gonna be focused on like are we are we making money are we raising money are we growing like it's very much the outcome the numerical outcome of the business is the thing that most people get obsessed with and you sort of have to to get a startup off the ground um, but what became really clear again in kind of like what we were talking about before with the fact that it probably is not going to work out from and again just reality whatever you all start if you all leave here and start businesses today one of you that business might be successful um, because you have a whole lot of support but you can all be super successful entrepreneurs down the road it's just the first thing that that might not work um, and so for me you know at at indeed and where I am in my life and and um, where we are at the business uh, we're talking with some folks about this last week I sort of think that there are three things that like my goal is to have them in, in harmony which is um, what is the impact that we're having on the world and society? And it's really clear for our business what that is. Um, and we have very explicit goals that we've made for 2030 that we want to help 100 million people get hired and help 30 million people facing barriers get hired. And um, so number one is what, what are we doing that's making the world a better place? And that's I, I say that with like 100% sincerity. That is what I think about when I get up in the morning. Number two is um, that the business is itself successful. That's my job and what the board is asking me to do. And we can only do the work to help make 
the, the world better and society better if we're building a profitable and successful business that's growing. And then the third is that the people that we work with are fulfilled and that they are learning and growing. So the way that, that I would say it is I want, I, want everyone, I want everyone's next job to be at Indeed. And I mean, for the people at Indeed, I want them to be able to, to come and have an experience where they are doing stuff, not only that um, is interesting and, and challenging, um, but that they are learning so much that they can continue to grow their career within the business. And so we're creating a system where people can come in and, and build and grow and learn and benefit from the impact that we're having on the world. So what I want to do is have those three in harmony and we very explicitly measure as a business what is the, the health of our team what is the health of the business and what is the impact we're having on the world and that's you know i'm super fortunate i don't need i could quit my job today and be fine financially i don't need to work but i'm working because like i there's still so much more to do in those areas and that's where um i i think and this is why I, I love the business because it's about job. But like, I think a job is um, way more than a means of you know financial support. It is that, and it, that means the world to a whole lot of people. But it's also for for people, it's a source of pride and dignity and a sense of meaning and purpose in your life. Um, and so I want I want my work to be about that. Um, and so I'm. I'm still going to work every day because I'm still getting that out of it. And as soon as that, if that went away for any reason, then I would have to go find something else to do. I was just wondering, so like in today's world and with people interested in entrepreneurship, um, what weight would you put on developing like CS and technical skills in college? And like going back to y'all's college experiences, what were resources that you took advantage of that like you think really helped you in your careers and like today? I'd put way less weight on CS and, and technical skills in college than I, I did before and, and put way more on entrepreneurship, on learning how to like teams building, like working together with people um, because you can learn like first of all, everything's changing so quickly, right? The, the number of people and number of roles where you need to have that deep CS experience from when I came out or when, you know, you came out, it just doesn't exist as much, right? Like there's still roles that, you know, if you want to do high frequency trading or you want to go, you know, develop some of these things where you need that, those core fundamentals. But for a lot of what people are doing, you don't need that level or that, that depth. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's as important as it was. I still think it's, it's helpful to understand it. I, I'm a big believer in understanding the why for everything. Um, and I think that that has helped me uh, you know, it, it learn, navigate, but I, but I think it's far more important to have a, an analytical mindset, a growth mindset, and be able to problem solve. I think the biggest advantage to studying CS in school is being surrounded by a bunch of other people who are building stuff. All the, like, when I was in grad school, I was working really hard in school and doing stuff, but I was, I was coding in my, all of my spare time building other stuff and just being surrounded by people who do that. I don't think you need to be in a computer science program for that to be true anymore, like you sort of did then, because there just weren't that many people doing it. Um, I, I will say, um, I think it's important to, to not be one-tracked. I think it's important to be like really 
passionate and deep about something, but like I don't think I wouldn't say if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, you need to study CS. If you are like me and you took your first three classes and were like, this is the most amazing thing in the world, I don't want to ever do anything else, like you should do it because you should follow the stuff that you're but if if you feel like, oh I wanna I wanna be an entrepreneur and I have to study CS because I'm gonna not have that like every startup needs a handful of different people with different skills. I think someone who's not passionate about it, forcing themselves to do a CS degree because they think they need it, you would be a lot uh, better off getting deep in something else and go and work for, for a startup, you know? And um, I do think that, I, I will say one thing that just kind of along the lines of what I was saying before about the bias stuff, or like I definitely want, I hope that there are more women and people of color in computer science programs. Um, it's about 19% uh, of computer science PhDs uh, last year went to women, and about 6% went to black and Latinx uh, people combined. And I think that's a huge problem, so I actually definitely want to encourage more people of different backgrounds to get into the field, because I think these systems need more people with different, I, like, I would hope that computer science PhD programs reflect the world around us, and it's going to be a while before that happens. Um, that's not the question you asked, but I'll just take the opportunity to plug that theory as well. Oh, and sorry, other things to study? T just take a statistics class, no matter what your major 100%. is. Like, like, take a couple statistics classes. No one understands classes. statistics. Like, that's really, really important. My name is Ash, and you guys mentioned having failed businesses of your own, being creative, but being realistic. And so I was just wondering um, what your opinion is for entrepreneurs in terms of when to take a no and to drop an idea, because we've seen both ends of the coins where on one side, you're pushing an idea so hard that's just not really, like the market's not ready and you go, you go down a drain almost, whereas some people who have had immense success stories after probably like a million no's. That is a great, That's a great question. Um, and so I'll, I'll just say from, from my experience, um, I sat down with Bill Wood, who was the founder of Silverton Partners, we were talking about before. So Silverton um, is one of the, the biggest VCs in Austin, and they were, they were our Series A investor at uh, B-Side. And I, I met with Bill after the whole thing crumbled and said, okay, we went out for breakfast. I was like, what could I have done differently? Obviously, you know, there's a million things that we do. And, he's, and Bill's like, generally when I, when I look at something, you know, when I look at the decisions that you guys made, the only thing that you could have done differently is a year and a half before when you ran out of funding and the bottom was falling out, like you could have just called it quits then. He didn't say, and there were a thousand mistakes that we, we made, but it was pretty clear to him with his experience that at that point, the, the business was not fine. Like things got too complicated. We didn't have enough money. Other people were starting to spend more. Like it wasn't going to work. And where, where I landed at the end of the whole process was like, I'm not done doing entrepreneurial stuff. And I'd rather put my energies behind something that has pot. So that was the Mr. Spock thing was missing. Like I was all Don Quixote for a long time. And I probably pushed for another year and a half longer than I should have. So um, the market, you know, isn't always right, but it is final in terms of whether something works or not. And, uh, and if something isn't working, moving on to something else is often the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I was going to bring up your Mr. Spock and Don Quixote again, which is having 
having someone that you trust that has an outside rational perspective that understands the passion you put into it uh, is, is key, right? Like I've, I've had a mentor that like, it was always great to be able to be open, be passionate and get called out when I need to be called out or get, you know, supported when I needed to. And so, you know, I, I think it's hard to do it. If you're playing the Don Quixote role, it's really hard to do it because that's your job. Yeah. The, the other thing is, it depends on your risk profile. So like when that was happening at B-Side, I was 40 and I was married. I had two kids and they were, you know, in middle school, going into high school and a few years away from college. And I had like, we had no money. You have nothing to lose. So like, don't quit now, <laughs> whatever you're doing. <laughs> um, like take as many risks as you can when you're in a position to, to take risks. And then it's like, we have a different calculus at, at our stage in our life, but definitely, yeah. Don't, don't listen to, to two old guys. How about that? Please join me in thanking Chris and Mitesh for joining us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Austinpreneur. Don't forget to check out capitalfactory.com to learn more about us and join our community. If you have thoughts about the show or ideas on how we can work together, reach out to me directly via email, nickspiller at capitalfactory.com. Shout out to the Capital Factory Dream Team for making this podcast possible. And special thanks to Aaron Handworker, who masterfully recorded and edited the show.